Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. In 1994, there was a 6.7 magnitude earthquake that rocked the city of Los Angeles at 4.30 a.m. And this earthquake was so powerful that it actually caused a citywide power outage in the city of lights. Not a single street light or house light was on, complete darkness. And the people of Los Angeles were kind of terrified. They, they went out of their houses and, and saw the darkness. And it was kind of eerie, no lights, checking on neighbors. And as they were kind of checking things out in this early morning, some began to be concerned because they saw a cloud, kind of this ominous cloud over the city, and they weren't quite sure what it was. People didn't know if maybe it was some sort of gas leak that had been caused by the earthquake. Some people even wondered if maybe it was some sort of government experiment that had gone wrong and, and caused some sort of reaction. And so people didn't know. And so they were so scared, so nervous, that they began calling 911 to report this uh, phenomenon. What they were actually seeing was the Milky Way galaxy. And they had lived in the city of light so long and had been so kind of overcome with light pollution that they did not recognize our galaxy in the night sky. And so they called 911 to say, hey, something is wrong and we don't know if you can do anything about it. And as I read this story a couple of weeks ago, it's just kind of sat with me because in so many ways, I feel like it serves as a metaphor for my life with God. In that there are so many things in this world that distract me, so many things that I can focus on, so many things that blind me in this world to the grace and glory of God, and I miss it. And it's not that it's not there, it's available to me, but I've just been so kind of blinded by the things of this world that I just don't even see God at work in my world. And today we're going to look at a story of an early church that was able to see the grace and glory of God. They were able to fix their eyes on the right things. They weren't blinded by the distractions and divisions of this world. They kept their eyes on Jesus. And because they kept that fixed focus on Jesus, they were able to see the glory of God and be incredible witnesses to his kingdom and to his reality. And after all, that's really what the book of Acts is about. If you remember to last fall when we kicked off this series, we said that the big idea of the book of Acts is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus comes to his apostles and to his disciples, and he says that you will be, receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus ascends to the throne, sends them out to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. And just a refresher, before we get into Acts 13 and beyond today, I'd like to kind of highlight some of the, the main steps of the story that we looked at, a summary, if you will, of the book of Acts so far. And so 
Where we begin was with Acts 1, where Jesus gives this instruction to his disciples that they will spread the message into the entire known world at the time. And then we see that actually begin to happen, the story play out in Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit descends, it empowers the apostles and the disciples, and they begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, and thousands come to faith and become a part of the body of Christ. And and we see this play out through the next several chapters, leading up to chapter 7, where Stephen proclaims the good news of Jesus to the point where he enrages the religious leaders at that time so much that they have him stoned to death. And then we see the expansion of the gospel, as Jesus said, to the areas of of Judea and Samaria after this persecution. The Christians are sent out. They begin proclaiming the good news. And we see Philip preach the gospel to a Samaritan, someone who thought they were outside the bounds of God's grace. And they come into faith. And we see Peter proclaim the good news about who Jesus is to the house of Cornelius. And we see the first Gentile convert. And towards the end of this section of scripture, we also are introduced to the first Gentile church in the house of Antioch, in the city of Antioch. And that's the story that I want to sit with today, because in many ways, the church of Antioch serves as a bridge from where we've been in Acts chapters 1 through 12 and the second part of the book of Acts, because the second part of the book of Acts is the gospel spreading into all the earth. And Antioch has a crucial role in the expansion of the gospel. And so we're actually going to be looking at Acts chapter 11, where we've already been, and then into Acts chapter 13, looking at this story of the church of Acts, because they are a church that that witnessed what God's grace could do, fixed their eyes on him, and saw God's glory in some profound ways. And I think there's something for us to learn from that today. And so if you will, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 19. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. Um, And if you don't have a Bible and want a Bible, we have Bibles in the pews. And as Larry likes to say, you can participate in our Steal a Bible program. And feel free to take one um, if you'd like one. So Acts chapter 11, verse 19, this is where our story starts this morning. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. But some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus, telling them the gospel about Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord." Now, as this story starts, it's really important, it's critical, in fact, that we understand the city where this is taking place, because the city of Antioch was not just a normal city. In fact, it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It's got about a quarter of a million people, and if you look at this map, you can kind of see over in the right-hand side where Antioch is just above Syria, Um, and it's kind of at a crossroads of a lot of traffic in the Roman Empire. And so it kind of is the the bridge between north and south and east and west. Uh, In fact, it sat along the spice trade route, and so a lot of people would come through there. It had a very robust economy, but it also had a, a lot of diversity. There were a ton of different cultures in this city and nationalities. In fact, it was so diverse, and there were so many people from all around the world in this city that one historian said, if you want to see the entire world in one city, visit Antioch. 
Because they just had a ton of people from all over the globe who had settled in this city. They had Greeks and Syrians and Jews and Ethiopians. And, and they, in fact, at its founding, one of Alexander the Great's generals, there were so many people in this city when he began to build it that he actually uh, built separating and dividing walls within the city to try to keep these different nationalities apart from one another to try to keep the peace. And so they had sections of the city that were walled off for the Greeks and sections of the city that were walled off for Ethiopians and for Jews and for, for Syrians, and they kept them all separate. To, to the point where actually at the time of this story, it's believed that there were over 18 subdivisions at the city of Antioch that keeping all of these people separate, all of these different ethnicities and nationalities and different cultures separated to try to keep the peace and keep people from fighting with one another. But big surprise, that strategy did not work at all. In fact, this city was known for a lot of violence and for riots and for people who were, were angry with one another and racism and fighting. And, and people felt certain people had a better place within the city. They were closer to the market and, and they had advantages that other people didn't. And some people felt disadvantaged because they were at the farthest part of the city or in the part of the city that had less access to water or to the marketplace. And, and all of them were infighting and frustrated with one another, but all of them didn't feel like there was anything they could do about it because it was something they had inherited from a general 300 years ago who had set the city up this way. And so there's all this frustration and violence and rioting. And this is the place where people began to preach the good news. And when it says preach the good news to the Greeks, it's, it's anyone who wasn't Jewish at the time. They actually go outside the walls of, of God's community and begin to preach the good news. And this is what happens next. Now news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encourage them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So the church in Jerusalem hears about the gospel being preached to people who aren't Jewish, and they've kind of got questions about what's going on there. So they send Barnabas, who's one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. If you remember back in Acts, I think it's chapter 4, he actually sells property to give to the church, and he's, he's renamed Joseph to Barnabas because he's such an encourager of the church. And so they send him to go encourage this church and kind of investigate and see what's going on in this place. And when he gets there, he, he's shocked. He's amazed at what the grace of God is doing. Because what Barnabas discovers in this city is this city that has been subdivided, that's been, been separated and segregated over all these different cultural differences is coming together in the name of Jesus. And, and that people are literally climbing, dividing walls to be together in the name of Jesus. That people for, who for hundreds of years had been separated from one another, who, who had been angry and committed violent acts against one another, were coming together under allegiance to Jesus. And he's amazed at the power of God's grace to make this happen. In fact, some historians say that this is the first time in history recorded where people are actually going beyond their tribe, going beyond their nationality, breaking down those dividing walls and forming a community that transcends cultural and economic and national differences. I mean, it's amazing what's happening in this city. 
And as he sees this, he, he encourages them to remain true to what God is doing in that space. And this idea of, of remaining true, it carries with it this idea of, of loyalty or allegiance, that he, he's encouraging them to stay with this conviction that Christ transcends all of these cultural differences, that, that Christ is the one who bridges the gap between these divisions and the things that had divided them. And if they can just hang on to Christ and keep their unity, their identity focused on him, then they can remain in this space where they're seeing this amazing work that God is doing in this world. And so he calls them to allegiance in Jesus. And I think we need to pause for a moment because it's worth saying and worth recognizing that we live in a culture that's incredibly divided and polarizing, right? I mean, we live in a time where people love to separate and create identities around all sorts of different things in this world. And so we have right, left. We have Republicans and we have Democrats. We have gays and we have straights and we have black and we have white and we have rich and we have poor and we have Cowboys fans and we have Broncos fans. And none of us get along, right? <laughs> and we just create ways to, to try to separate ourselves and say, they're over there and I'm over here and I'm with the good people and, and they're the bad ones. And we can create countless ways to divide and create division. And yet there's something going on by the grace of God in this city that begins to transcend all of those things that begins to transcend this human nature that we all have to separate and segregate one another. And the story goes on, and it says that then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great number of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. I love this note that Luke includes at the end of this story because he says that, that here's this city with all of this division, all of this segregation, all of the ways that people have separated each other, and they are all coming together in allegiance to Jesus to the point where people don't know what to call them because, you see, the Greeks were still Greek. They didn't change nationalities or ethnicities or cultures, and the Syrians were still Syrian, and the Jews were still Jews, and all of them were coming together. They, they, they weren't culture blind to their differences. But all of these differences paled in comparison to who Jesus was and what he had done in their lives. You see, their identity was rooted in allegiance to Jesus. And all of these secondary things that used to divide people began to fade away. And it wasn't that they just ignored them. But it was that Jesus transcended them. That the cross was more powerful than the walls that had divided them. And people didn't know what to call them, so they called them little Christs, the Messiah people. Because that was the one thing that they had in common, is a faith and allegiance to Jesus. It's a remarkable story of God's grace. And I wonder for us today, in this world full of division and separation and the ways that we can divide ourselves, if there's not something for us to learn about what it means to be a church united in allegiance to Jesus, what if we could recapture in a world of polarization an identity that wasn't rooted in differences, but in the person of Jesus Christ? You know, we have been through so many things over the last few years 
between politics and pandemics and all the other things that have come with that. And it's broken my heart at times to see not, not just Waterstone, but the church in general, the different ways that we have responded to the different things going on in our culture and the ways that we have chosen to divide or, or separate small groups because people didn't vote the same way we did or, or leave churches because we feel like we're not represented in the right way around the community. And we've allowed all of these secondary things to, to become primary things to, to become the deciding factors of whether or not we stay or go or are united. And there's something about the person of Jesus Christ, the grace of his work in our lives, that when we can fix our eyes on that reality, that all of the things that we can use to divide ourselves and separate and segregate ourselves begin to pale in comparison. I, I wonder what it would look like for us as a community to come together not around our economic status, our political beliefs, but around a belief in Jesus Christ. And that that would be the foundation of our identity. That's what the church of Antioch found. And, and it had this amazing result where, where they were able to proclaim and witness to the reality of what Jesus was doing in their life because of the grace of God. And we go on in Acts chapter 13, and the church of Antioch comes back to the forefront. And, and what we see is Luke lists the leaders at the church of Antioch, and, and take note of what he says about this church. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, who we just saw, Simeon called Niger, which is another way of saying black, so that his nickname was literally black, he's probably African, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we know as Paul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And what you have to realize is, is Luke is going out of his way in this moment to describe the leaders of the church of Antioch. Because what he does in just one sentence is let us know that there are five leaders in the church of Antioch with four different nationalities from three different continents. And the two people who say, share the same nationality, Barnabas and Paul, actually have very different religious backgrounds. So Barnabas was what was called a Hellenistic Jew, and Paul was a Hebraic Jew. This is a very diverse group of people leading this church, and it's pointing back to the story in Acts chapter 11, saying, this is what God's grace has done. These people with so many cultural differences, so many religious differences, so many different backgrounds have come together in the name of Jesus and their allegiance to him. And it actually goes deeper than that. It, the grace of God was good enough to, to bring people from all these different backgrounds together. But when you begin to learn and understand some of the, the stories of these people, the grace of God becomes even more remarkable. So you have... Paul and Barnabas, who Barnabas is called the encourager of the early church. And if you know the story from earlier in Acts, Paul, when he sees this church growing in Jerusalem, he becomes angry. And in fact, it actually tells us that, that he not only witnessed Stephen's murder by the mob, but he actually approved of the murder. And it led him to, to create a great persecution in Jerusalem where he was breaking down doors and, and taking people into prison 
Men and women are being arrested and sent to prison. Their houses are being looted. And Paul is at the forefront of this movement trying to kill and destroy the early church. So you have Barnabas, the encourager of the early church, and you have Paul, an enemy of the church. Both come together and are reconciled at Antioch and leading this church together. And it probably goes deeper than that because Barnabas is in Jerusalem at the time when Paul is is committing these atrocities against the church. It's not hard to imagine that some of the people that that, that Paul broke down the doors of and and took all of their things and took them to prison were were Barnabas' friends. And yet somehow Barnabas found it within himself to reconcile with this person who had destroyed the lives of people that he loved. And then we're also told of, of an interesting detail about another man named Menean. And Menean, it said, is the friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, the Herod's come up a few times in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels and in Acts. The first time we come across a Herod is, is Herod the Great in the story of Christmas. And Herod the Great is the one who, after the wise men left and didn't return to him and tell him where the baby Jesus was, is he had uh, boys in Bethlehem murdered to try to kill the king who was born that was a threat to his rule and reign. Herod the Tetrarch is his son, and he's also a piece of work. In fact, he is so bad that, that he, um, he has his, his mother-in-law and his brother-in-law and I think one of his sisters murdered. And not only that, but this is the guy who in the Gospel of John has his da- stepdaughter come into his throne room with all of his buddies and has his stepdaughter perform a dance for him and is so filled with lust for his stepdaughter, yuck, that he says, whatever you want in my kingdom, you can have. And she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is the guy who killed John the Baptist. And when Jesus is arrested and betrayed and brought before Pilate, and Pilate doesn't really want anything to do with Jesus, he doesn't want to have to to figure out how to rule in this trial. And so he kind of is like, oh, hey, you're a Jew. I'll just send you to the king, and and you can go to Herod. And so Herod gathers all of his friends around, and he has Jesus come in, and he just wants him to perform like he's some magician at a kid's birthday party, and Jesus refuses. So Herod the Tetrarch has him beaten and sent back to Pilate. And his friend from childhood, we're told, Menean, it's not a stretch to say he was likely in the room and in the household for some of those events. And he is one of the leaders at the church of Antioch. See, what Luke is going out of his way to say is this grace that has brought people from all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities and nationalities, the breadth of God's grace also has the depth to rescue some of us from some of the worst backgrounds imaginable. And not just rescue us, but but elevate us to the point where God can do something with us. That God can use people like Saul and Menean to advance his kingdom. You see, I think we have this interesting relationship with the grace of God. And maybe I won't even use the term we. I'll just tell you about myself and maybe you resonate. Is I feel like I often have two responses to the grace of God. And the first response is this. I see God's grace at work in my life and I say, I don't deserve that. 
I know my past. I know my present. I know the things that I do. I know the things that I say. I know how angry I can get. And I think there is no way that I deserve God's grace in my life. There is no way that God could ever forgive me. There is no way that God could ever reconcile me to himself. I don't deserve God's grace. Then on other days, I I have a weird response where I actually kind of believe I deserve God's grace. But all of you don't. Like everyone else doesn't deserve God's grace. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they would say that. I can't believe they would represent Jesus that way. They don't deserve your grace, God. I have the answers. I know what's right, and they don't. And so I can't believe you would be gracious to them. And I kind of swing between these two realities of I don't deserve God's grace or they don't deserve God's grace. And the truth is, on some level, both are actually true. Because that's what grace is. It's not something I deserve and it's not something you deserve. It's this powerful gift that God has given us that gives us the ability to not only reconcile with God, but to reconcile with people who are very different than us. See, the grace of God goes deep, and our identity as believers is rooted in the grace of God that we have experienced. And the deeper we experience, the the deeper we understand, the deeper we realize that truth, the deeper we see God's grace for our lives, the more the things that distract and divide begin to fade away. Because we know what's truly important. Because we know what God has done in our lives. And so why wouldn't we extend that same grace to other people? The story of, of Antioch is so cool because their founding actually was birthed out of the persecution that Paul committed in Jerusalem. So Paul begins committing these atrocities against the church, and and the church spreads out and goes to Antioch and preaches the gospel. And people come to faith, and Barnabas goes and witnesses this, and he's so encouraged by what the grace of God is doing in this space that he goes, and who does he get? Saul. And he brings Saul to teach the way of Jesus to the very people he had persecuted and scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And that church... The depth of the grace of God allows them to send Paul as a missionary to preach the grace they had received to the rest of the Roman world. I don't know anything that powerful to to bridge those kind of gaps, to bring that kind of reconciliation other than the grace of God. See, the story of the church is a story of grace. God showing up in forgiveness and accepting the worst of us into his family, breaking down, tearing down the walls that divide us so that we can bear witness to what grace has done in our lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I I don't know where everyone in this room is this morning. God, I, I don't know if, if there's some in this room who walk in and, and they come to church and they feel like, I don't belong here, I'm not good enough, I've done too many things. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would slip into that space and begin to preach the gospel, the good news, 
of what your grace can do in our lives. God, for those of us who maybe come in and, and we can have those hearts of judgment, we can, we can be like Paul who thought we had it all together, we knew all the right answers, we knew all the right things to say. And God, sometimes we just need to be knocked off our horse with a blinding light so that we can see your glory and your grace. And God, I pray for people in that space today and for anyone in between that your grace would rest heavily upon us, not just for our own sake, but so that we can bear witness to the reality of what grace has done in our lives and in our community. For the glory of who you are and so that it can be seen by a world in need. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.